friends. Welcome to the Skyline Church Podcast. I'm Jonathan Middlebrooks, one of the pastors here at Skyline Church. Skyline is a worshiping community, a disciple-making community, and a generational community. We're committed to seeing revival in our city sparked through the presence of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. These sermons are specific to that purpose and in the context of our unique community. We hope that it might bless you in some way. Enjoy. just with this idea of looking at these vignettes, um, these encounters with Jesus, where people met Jesus as he walked the earth and seeing what happened to them, what was the result, because we believe that Christianity is all about an encounter with Jesus. It's not just a system of beliefs, it's a relationship with a person and how human beings change when they come into contact with him. And so we're going to be Luke 7, starting in verse 36. So Luke 7, verse 36. I'm going to read this. So I'm excited to talk this morning about, it's just an amazing uh, story of Jesus encountering a woman at a dinner. So verse 36, if you've got it, I'm just going to start to read. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him. I love when Jesus answers people's thoughts. That's got to be disconcerting, right? (laughs) You're talking in your head, he's talking to you. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, he looks at her and says, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Any good Jew would know that the only person who can forgive sins is God Almighty. Jesus is aligning himself as God, very God. Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
Uh, I want to pray for us. If we just take a moment, would you just bow your heads and close your eyes just for a second? Because I want this story not just to be an encouraging story or something that just, you know, is interesting or fascinating or we learn something, but something that actually gives us a place to live from. So Jesus, we love you. I love this story which tells us about who you are. It tells us about what our Father in heaven is like. And it shows us how to rightly respond to the good news of the kingdom of God. I pray today that you would take the truth of this story and you would plant it in our hearts today. That we would come to know you more deeply. We would come to see you more clearly today by the power of the Holy Spirit as we consider the text. And we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. So Jesus, we find him getting invited to dinner. And it's interesting because the Pharisees are still kind of studying Jesus, right? They're trying to figure out who is this guy and what is he all about? And the best way to do that is to get him in situations where you can just kind of converse and ask questions and go a little bit deeper. And so they invite him to this meal. And, it, and I love it because Jesus, if you track these stories, he's making himself available to all types of people. Right? Rich and poor, Gentile and Jew, religious, non-religious, sinner. It doesn't matter. People who invite Jesus close, he always responds with a yes. He, he's never measuring where they're at and how he'll come toward them. It's always, Jesus, do you want to come over for dinner? Yes. Tax collector, yes. Pharisee, yes. Doesn't matter. If you're willing to have me, I'm willing to come to you. And uh, you know, Luke notes a bunch of different meals with the Pharisees. And what's interesting is on every single occasion, the mealtime raises some kind of issue. They ask a question or something happens that ends up with him rebuking them, which is hilarious that they keep inviting him to dinner. You'd think the word would spread after somebody like, hey, this doesn't go well for us. Like, stop inviting him to these dinners. Like, he's, he's not really on our side fully. So like, but it's just fascinating that even with these rebukes, they're still fascinated with Jesus. They see the things he does and they hear the things he teaches and they see the response from people and they keep just wanting to figure it out. They keep wanting to, to get more information about him. So Jesus attends this meal and it says that he's reclining, right? So he's reclining at this meal, which uh, this is instructive because if he's reclining, this means it's not just a family meal. Uh, guests uh, at family meals, they would sit and eat. At banquets, they'd recline. So this means this is more of like a public meal where likely there was like the official guests. And then there's people around the room who were uh, able and invited to listen and just to be there. Probably not invited to speak, but just be like, hey, if you want to come be a fly on the wall as we pepper him with questions, feel free. So it's kind of a public place, which gives this woman an opportunity to approach Jesus in a way that she wouldn't have otherwise, right? Um, and, and so they would recline kind of on, you know, on your elbow with your feet away from the table. Um, and, and that's how they would take their meal. And it's, a, it's this kind of banquet setting. So Jesus, um, in, in this story, is reclining with these people. He's, he's talking and in, uh, enters this woman. And it's an amazing story because the woman never speaks. Isn't that interesting? The only thing we have of this woman are her actions. And it made me think about, what would my life be if no one could measure my words? If I had no words, they never heard me talk, what would they know of me? This, this woman, just her actions, it's incredible, the, the weight 
of, of actions over words. So she enters this place. The, the scripture there says that she's a sinner. And this Greek word uh, is, is homotolis, which is just kind of really fascinating word because it both means like actually she had sinned or had been living in sin, but it was more than just her actions. It was her reputation. And it was the perception of her. She carried the weight of someone who even probably likely long after she had stopped sinning would still be considered a sinner. And I wonder if there's people in here who felt that way. We're like, man, I changed my life, and yet the perception of me is still this. It's still trailing my life. I'm, I'm considered one of those people. Um, some of us um, who come from small towns, right? Any, any small town people here where you know the people who have a reputation, that family, those people, those kids. Oof. And you never quite know what it is about them because you're a kid. You just know, like, don't go to that house or don't hang around. Those. But it's like there's a reputational factor about people in these situations. This woman had it. No one would get near her. No religious person. They'd be like, hey, she's just kind of off limits, right? Um, and we find this again and again as we enter these vignettes of Jesus getting near people that other people wouldn't get near. Um, his boundaries look so much different than our boundaries. Um, he, he just didn't have this measurement thing about people. And so we don't know what she did or who she was. Some people think she was Mary Magdalene. I don't think that's very compelling. I think this is a, a unique story about this woman. But her reputation uh, makes the Pharisees nervous, right? Makes them nervous, because partly because she's probably considered unclean. If she has sin in her life, oh, you're going to make us unclean. It's also that she, they're gonna make her, she's going to make their reputation unclean. All of a sudden, if I get seen with this person, everyone's going to think I'm like her and I agree with her and we're on the same page about everything when we're not. We're, we just end up in the same place at the same time. So they're nervous. Jesus knows this, right? He knows their thoughts. But she's drawn to Jesus. And it's interesting because it doesn't tell why she's come to Jesus, but it's clear that somewhere along the way, she's heard him teach. She heard the message of the kingdom of God that in Jesus, there's forgiveness of sins. And that God is drawing near. The kingdom of God is at hand. The Messiah is here. And guess what? This Messiah is different than the one we expected. He actually came to save sinners. And blessed are those who heard that word and say, that's me. <laughs> like he came for me. And so she goes, that Jesus who's proclaiming this word is in my town. I am going to find out where she is. And I love the investigative. She's talking, what's, where's he at? What's he doing? Oh, he's at this house. Okay, so she makes a plan. She's like, I'm going to get near him. And I love that in her plan to get near him, she's not like, I'm just going to go sit on the wall and listen to Jesus. She comes up with the most radical, crazy, like if she told anybody this plan, they're like, you're, you're a little nuts. Like, what? you think you're just going to sneak in there and wash his feet and pour perfume on him and get away with that? You think they're not going to toss you out of the house and possibly stone you? And you know, it's just like, what a, what a crazy plan. I love her boldness and her uh, just lack of care for what other people think about. She's like, I already have a terrible reputation. So I, I, I'm not risking anything other than probably physical altercation. And I'm willing to get it for this kind of thing. So she takes this alabaster, alabaster jar, jar, this perfume. She sneaks in, and it's fascinating that she speaks no words, but Luke describes her action in, in really specific detail. 
he, he describes exactly what she does, that she comes up from behind him. She's standing over him. Um, and it's funny because if you think about it, if Jesus is reclining toward the table, he's not seeing her. But you can imagine that the other people's eyes are probably going like, you ever been there where like somebody's coming and the other person is seeing him? You're like, what? I don't know what's happening here. Is anything, is everything cool? What is she doing? Why is she here? And so they're like, and then all of a sudden he feels on his feet like wetness, which would be an odd thing to feel at a, at a dinner party. You know, if all of a sudden you're like, my feet are wet. What? Like, am I sweating? It's like, it's hot. And it's kind of hot in here right now, so I, I can see it happening. But so Jesus sits down, the, he's, he's removed his sandals, right? So his feet are bare. He's reclined on his side. She, re, she approaches. But I, what's interesting is her purpose, I think, this is my interpretation. So thus says Jonathan, not the Lord, right? I think her intention was just to anoint his feet. But when she got near Jesus, she was so moved by his actual presence and the reality of what Jesus does for people, she just began to weep. Isn't that amazing? She was just like, oh, I just, I just got to get near him. I'm going to do this thing. I've made it all in my head. I know what I'm going to do. And she got there and she just loses it. Because the reality of what she had heard and the man who all those things exist in came like this. And the theory becomes reality in a moment. And she just begins to weep at Jesus' feet. We've had many people have this experience at our church where they're like, I come to church and I just cry. And I'm like, I know, it's a weird thing that happens at our church. Many people, when they come to our church at first, they just weep for the first weeks or months or maybe a year, I don't know. And it's interesting, the response. Some people, it causes them to not come back. Because they're just like, I just can't. And my answer is always like, where better to weep than in the presence of God and with his people? This means God's doing something in you. That's him. That weeping is a result of getting near to God and the reality that this God loves you in his actual presence. And it's just moving your heart because you were made to be near him. And that weeping is just letting stuff go in his presence. A lot of times, a lot of what's happened here is it's religion breaking off. And we're going to see that here in, in what God does when you get near him. But she goes to anoint his feet. She gets so overcome, she just starts to weep. And it's just this joy at the, to be at Jesus' feet. And it's interesting because the word that they use for weeping there is, is, is significant. It's not just a few tears. It's actually used in other places in the Bible for rain showers. I mean, she's not just dropping a few tears. She is gushing tears at the feet of Jesus. His feet are so wet, she's got to wipe them with her hair. It's not just, I'll just brush that one off. It's like, no, they're covered in tears. It's like a lifetime of stuff is coming out in this moment at Jesus' feet. It's just washing his feet. She's just weeping. And it's not just like a little whimpering. You can imagine, have you ever heard somebody sob? Just, (gasps) I mean, can you imagine just the moment to go from theological discussion and the theory about who God is and why Jesus came to someone just losing it And that doesn't just take a couple seconds. You're talking minutes of awkwardness and silence because no one's going to talk in this moment. They're all waiting. They're all watching. What is he going to do? She's weeping. 
And then she starts to wipe his tears away. So she undoes, I think probably what she has is she has her hair covered, which is the very modest thing to do. And just because she undoes her hair, which is a thing that's kind of weird in the presence of all these men. And then what does she do? She takes her long hair and she just begins to wipe the once dirt, which is now mud, <laughs> off of his feet. She just lets go of all decorum. She go, lets go of all respectability, of all dignity. She has none anyways. And she just starts to wipe his feet off. And then what does she do? As she's wiping them, she goes even further. She starts to kiss his feet. I don't know. I, I don't like feet. I don't know about you guys. I'm not like a big foot guy. I don't know. It's just, you know, we wash feet every year, and it's a discipline, friends. It is just like, all right, I'm going to get in here. It's going to be weird. And it's never not weird. I've been doing it since I was like three years old. I've been washing feet every year of my life, and it never gets not weird. But there's something powerful about washing somebody's feet. There's something holy, and there's something sacred um, about it. And it's interesting that she does for Jesus what someday in the future he's going to do for his disciples. Isn't that amazing? She's the first one to do that in the scripture, and then Jesus does it. Maybe he already had it planned, or maybe he looked at her and goes like, oh, that's, that's what, what it's like to know God. That's what it's like to be in relationship with other human beings. So she just starts, then she starts to kiss his feet. And it's interesting, it's even this word for kiss is katafileo, which is, it's the more intense form of the verb used to describe kissing. But it's not like, this isn't like, you know, erotic kissing or like dating kissing. Phileo is like family, filial. This is the deep love that comes in family. It's also used to describe when the, the father sees the prodigal son returning and he runs to him and he kisses his son who's been gone for so long. This is the kind of thing she does for his feet. Isn't that amazing? This woman, what's happened in her? You have to ask yourself, what has happened inside of her for her to respond in this way? To just get at Jesus' feet, to weep, to wash, and then to just kiss his feet. And then after she's done kissing his feet, then she starts to open the jar. She just starts to pour it out. And so again, I just want you to think about how long this is taking. I mean, this is like, I don't know if this is 10 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes or an hour. We have no reference. I just know it's way longer than you would be comfortable with. Like wherever your comfort level is, it, it has stretched far beyond that place. And who knows, maybe some people got up to leave. Maybe some people are grumbling. I don't know. It just, who knows what's happening in that place? But she's wiping. It says she was wiping. She was kissing. She was anointing. It's this, this uh, progression in the tenses there, in, in the actual words. Each step took time. She expresses this deep reverence for Jesus, and she allows her emotion to be witnessed. So imagine all this takes place and then the thought, you know, this thought is formulating and Jesus gets to address the thought because these guys are disturbed by what's happening. She's touching Jesus and this continuous overboard contact is worrisome. It's, it's like, this is weird. This is overboard. Who is this guy? Does he do this everywhere? I mean, can you imagine just all the thoughts and all the things that's happening? And she's unclean. She's a sinner. And Jesus, his acceptance of her action is what bothers them. 
It bothers them that Jesus isn't interrupting this process and telling her that she's wrong. And it's so interesting that we're so obsessed with telling people they're wrong and Jesus, he's just like, can you just be patient? Just chill out a little bit. Like you're so ready to tell people they're wrong and half the time you're wrong in telling, you know, it's like, it's just interesting. He's so patient with people. But it's clear from their reaction. So Jesus, I love what he does. He just tells a story. He tells a story, right, about, about a debtor and about forgiveness and about what's happening here. And it's fascinating because in this story is embedded some truths. One is embedded the truth that, that God is the master and that every single person owes God a debt, whether you owe him a little debt or you owe him a lot of debt. And then he shows that God's not like any master that you've ever met because God is a God of forgiveness and he forgives all the debts. With no requirement, there's no like forgive this debt, but the next business you start, I get 10% of it. You still owe me in some way. It's like, no, 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 I'll forgive this debt completely and we are free and clear. But it's fascinating because the Pharisees would have recognized there's a little sinner and there's a big sinner in this. They knew that the woman was the big sinner, but they would have never thought of themselves as little sinners. And Jesus identifies them. Even in your righteousness, even in the way you think you're pleasing God, you still require the repayment of a debt. And it's on offer for you too. But the problem is in the offering, the one who's forgiven little loves little. The one who's forgiven much loves much. The sinner who realizes the nature of the forgiveness received freely will be in a position to love God greatly. So there's this interchange here, and Jesus is just kind of like pressing into this idea. And in this idea, I think, is the secret of the kingdom of God, and it reveals what God wants from people. What does God want? Does he want work to repay the little debt you owe him, or does he want radical love in response? I think he's saying, what I want from human beings is a radical response of love to my radical gift. And if you don't get that, you're missing a huge part of who God is and what he came to do and who you are to him. All these things is, is baked into this little story. It's so amazing. And Jesus then goes on to defend right, this, this thing, and he contrasts the actions of the religious to the actions of a grateful sinner. And he says, listen, I came to your house, right? And you didn't wash my feet. She washed my feet with her tears. He's like, you didn't even come to here. She went here, right? Now, you could argue, and many commentators do, it wasn't customary. Every time you visited somebody's house, it wasn't like you washed every single person's feet. But if you had a guest of significant honor, it was something you would offer them. So the Pharisees were making a point to Jesus, you're like us, you're just a guy who's a teacher, who's really smart, we want to feel out how you're doing all this magic, right? How do you heal people? How do you cast out demons? We want to know, but listen, you're not coming in here like you're better than us or you're more than us. They didn't give him the honor that was due even a prophet, much less the son of God, who's in flesh and blood. Then he says, you didn't give me a kiss, which was a very customary greeting to someone you loved and respected or cherished, was just a kiss. Paul says in the New Testament, greet each other with a holy kiss. If you go to Italy today, in some parts of the world, this still happens. I don't know how many of you have done this, but uh, I preached at a church in Italy uh, when I was young, and I had to learn that when somebody goes to kiss you on either cheek, you just stay still. 
Because if you guess, you're going to get a kiss on the lips from, a, from either a guy or it's mostly like older ladies. And I'm like, I've kissed so many people on the lips this week. I just got to keep my face still because I never guess the right direction. I'm like, oh, yeah, here we go. Nope. There's another one on the lips. <laughs> I was like, all right, Lord. They're like, this guy's weird. He's kissing everyone on the lips. So anyways, but so like, they're like, he's like, you didn't even give me a kiss when I came in. And she's kissing my feet. She's taking what would be considered the worst part of a person and giving it the highest amount of affection. And you couldn't even bother yourself to re- really, and what would happen if they would have kissed him, it would have been like, we're together. I mean, they were just like, so listen to this. The religious always keep God at a cool distance. They're always like arm's length from God. Because it leaves me in control. It leaves me in control of other people's perceptions. It leaves me in control of my, kind of my own life. It's always like, hey, you stay there. I'll stay here. I like you. I think you're pretty good. I'm going to listen to you. I'm going to talk about you. But, and he's like, yeah, but look at what she, I mean, she's like, how close can I get to him? closest thing you could get is kissing his feet. And then he says, and you didn't anoint my head with oil. And look at what she's done. She's breaking the whole jar and she hasn't ceased to anoint me with this expensive perfume. At the end of the day, Simon did less than he could have done. That's his story. Guys, and the thing that scares me about my story is that it might be said of me someday that I did less than I could have done for Jesus. that I held things back. Like I kept things to myself. I I kept him at a distance where I could just kind of manage the perceptions of other people, what they thought of me. I didn't go all the way. So in the story, the Pharisee becomes a little sinner, right? And he is keeping Jesus at a distance, and Jesus contrasts the result of the woman's expression of love with the Pharisees. And I love this quote in this, this commentary I read, love emerging from forgiveness changes the direction of someone's life. Not love to earn forgiveness, but love that arises from the reality that you have been forgiven will change your life. If you allow his forgiveness to well up in you into love back to him, it will change your life manifests as love. So Jesus responds to the woman. I love this, that he, he just says, hey, this woman here, she's loving much. She is the approved one. She's got the blessing. She's getting um, what I've promised I have for human beings. And it's amazing because it's just like this thing that you never would have guessed. And then Jesus looks at this woman and he says, your faith has saved you. So faith was the basis of all these things. She went by faith to that house and that faith led her to the very first action that led to this whole process that culminated in confirmation where he says, your faith has saved you. The thing that you believed in your heart before you came here and you'd heard and put this hope in your life, it it manifested itself in faith and it led you here into an action that now will get you the confirmation you desired. And guess what you get after that? You get peace. And it's this incredible cycle that it's like faith plus action leads to confirmation, which leads to peace. So many times we're waiting for confirmation so that we can act. And God's saying, no, 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 let your faith lead you to action And after the action's done, that's when I bring the confirmation. But faith without works is dead. It's impossible to please God without faith. Let your faith lead you to this action of worship. 
uh, of Jesus. So um, this story, I've got just a few things that are really just kind of jumbled thoughts. Honestly, like, because there's so much here that I, that I want to say, but I just want to kind of run through these to a point where I, th- I think we have a place to close from, right? So he- here's what I think. There's in this story, there's an invitation to choose. Um, I said in the prayer room this morning, it's almost like Moses, where Moses goes, I set before you blessings and curses. Choose this day whom you will serve. The way you live out of this place will actually decide what you receive, And I think in this story, there's a choice to either live like a Pharisee or live like the woman. There's a choice to respond like this man and his friends or to enter into this place of this this woman. And what I see in this is I see love over knowledge. I see one people seeking knowledge, seeking the intellectual expression, wanting to understand. I see the other one saying, I'm going to understand the most simple thing about God and I'm going to respond. That's it. I don't need a lot. But if I know that he loves me and has forgiven me of my sins, that's enough to run after him. I don't need to know it all. I see passion over respectability. I think that's a huge one for us because our lives in the United States of America depend so much on our reputation. And even in the church, we can live by reputation. Who you are outside of this place has got to match who you are in this place. And I think it's a dangerous game to start to wonder what would happen to you if people saw you unravel in the same way this woman unraveled before God. I think action over words. I think so many times we love words. God says in the Old Testament, it's like, your words weary me. Stop talking. <laughs> let your words be few. Just get near me and let me Come over the top of you. Let your actions display your words. Because words without actions don't mean a whole lot, right? I see gratitude over entitlement. One person felt like they were entitled to the presence of Jesus, to be in his, it's like we're equal. The other says, can you believe I can get near him? I see in the Pharisee the the self-righteousness blinded him to the fact that he was in the presence of God. So you see in the woman, right? You see humility, you see contrition, you see emotion, you see sacrificial generosity and worship by this jar of perfume, you see devotion, you see love. I see in the Pharisee, I see skepticism. I see like a stoicism, like a, like a regard to keep things together, to hold it together, to be professional, to be respectable. I see like this casual interaction with Jesus, And friends, if we're not careful, our life will be a series of casual interactions with God. Like, it'll just be like, yeah, I went to church, I went to that class, I did this thing, I'm, I'm trying to be good, but it's just, everything's very casual, everything's very measured, everything's very respectable, everything's very controlled. You see judgment and condemnation, right? You see uh, attention to detail without devotion, like I'm, I'm fulfilling, I'm checking all the boxes. Let me check the box. I went to Bible study this week. I did my devotions five out of seven days. I came to church. I, you're like, I helped somebody across the street. I gave some money to Curbside Chronicle. I, you know what I mean? We're like, we're measuring where we're at. And sometimes God's like, but we haven't actually spoken this entire week. I, wanna, I want you to hear my voice. I want you to feel my presence. I want to be with you. That's what Jesus said. I've called you so that you would be with me. Not so you do a bunch of stuff for me. But it's fascinating to me, all throughout the scripture, there's this theme that one of the most dangerous things you can do is judge someone else's worship. 
We see it here with the Pharisees. They look at what she's doing and, and it's judgment. Because they're comparing their worship to her worship and they just start to judge in their hearts. We see it with David, right? Where David dances with the ark and his wife, Michael, instead of being with the procession, she's, what is she doing? She's watching him when she could have been worshiping God. So she's watching and she judges him and, he, and she goes, oh, so you're going to do this thing? He goes, listen, I'll become more undignified than this. Like, you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> I, and I love David. David's like, if God will live in our midst, I will do whatever he asks me to do. That's, that's my one desire. One thing I ask, this I seek, that I might gaze upon your beauty in the temple. I might inquire of you that I would live in your house, God. But we see this passionate, emotional worship is motivated by love. It's the expression of kingdom people. Um, and this is, this is the thing, I think, that we... You never see Jesus judge emotional response. As we've like leaned into this idea of worship and praise and prayer and, and really allowing the Holy Spirit to work here, one of the most common things we get a pushback on is like, well, it's, it can't just be about emotionalism. And, and I, I understand that. That's not what we're going for. But I also just want to say, have you read people's responses to Jesus? What they did when they got close to him? It's just like, man, have you read what Jesus did when he got close to people? How he wept and how he mourned and how he rejoiced and I'm, I'm sure how he laughed. Like, Jesus was the most fully alive human being we've ever known in all ways. His emotions were under control, but they were not suppressed. And when the time was right, he would let them out. He prayed before God like he was sweating blood. Does that sound like emotion to you? It, it sounds like it to me. So I, I look at this thing that like the, the, the emotionalism is, is many times a measure again to keep God here, to stay in control. But can I tell you like one of my hopes for this church? My hope for our church is that our worship would make Pharisees feel awkward. Like when people are like, I don't know, it's kind of expressive. I'm like, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think it's going to get more. Can I, can I just say that? I, I, I want our church to grow in our expression of love to God. Like, like, I don't think we're even scratching the surface of what can happen when God comes near. And it's not that we seek the emotion or the, we express because forgiveness has hit our hearts like a ton of bricks. And the only thing we can do is weep and laugh and cry and dance and raise our hands and fall on our face and hug each other and pray for each other and lay on a hand, like to do all the things we read in the scripture. But I see here that the, the Pharisees base their love of God on the standpoint of the amount of debt forgiven. The invitation, so, so many of you guys, I know it, like, we gotta, you're, like, you're just getting in church, you just got a bunch of youth group kids who are like, I've been pretty good. Anybody? You've been pretty, it's okay. You're like, I've been pretty good. Like, I wasn't like, hey, Shepard, <laughs> get a good wave. I love that. You know, they're like, I wasn't the radical sinner. I didn't have a crazy salvation moment. I didn't like, I, I didn't wake up with the pigs in a far country, I haven't spent my inheritance. I've just been basically a good person. And you get in this place where you feel like you're trying to muster up because it's focused on like your, your debt rather than focusing on the payment. What's fascinating about God is his payment for your little debt was the same as his payment for the big debt. So you can either worship based on your debt owed or you can worship based on the payment given. 
You can worship based on Jesus died on the cross for my sins, even if my sins were small compared to my friend. Holy cow, the price he paid for me to be near him devastates me. It devastates me. It unravels me. It throws me for a loop every time I consider it. His love for me. So, so uh, one of the peers said that she, uh, one commentator said that she was living in the state of forgiveness. I love this. It's not that she had been forgiven. She was living in the state of forgiveness. And I think that's where true worship comes from. True worship comes from people who live in the state of forgiveness. They don't forget. They don't move past. They never graduate. That's why David prays in Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Let me live in that early place. Because that's where my life is most pure. That's where my life has most power. That's when I hear your voice, like, let me return, God. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Why? Because your spirit always reminds me of the work of Jesus inside me. He's always calling me back to the work of Jesus. Last thing. I think it's fascinating that Jesus shows us it's worship that he desires. He's like, amongst all the things we're doing, what he always is looking for is worship. Even in, in uh, Luke 4, right? Or it might be John 4, where he meets the, the woman at the well. He says, the father's seeking what? Worshippers. That's what he's looking for. He, like, we're going to worship in spirit and truth, but he's looking for worshipers. He's not looking for people who can always get the right answer and always do the right thing. He wants people who will fall on their face at his feet and love him. And that's the kind of church that can impact the world. It can change things, right? So we've spent a long time trying to argue our way into the existence of God, into the belief of God, all this stuff, and look at where we're at. And yet every time the church catches fire for the actual person, Jesus, and becomes a worshiping church, it's revival. So it's interesting to me that the Pharisees loved meals centered on discussion about God. That's what they loved. They loved a good meal and just some talk about doctrine and about God. And wouldn't it be cool if the Messiah came back and blah, 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 and all this stuff. And then what happened? The Messiah came in their midst and they missed him. The American church today, friends, loves meals and discussion about God. And I just want to tell you, it's a form of godliness while denying its power. So we can sit around tables and we can talk about God until the cows come home while the world burns. Or we can give ourselves to first love of Jesus, radical, costly worship. And wherever that happens, whether it's in your car or it's in your home or it's at the coffee shop, but especially it has to be here. Because where the church is centered on meals and discussion, the church is prayerless. I've done this for 25 years. Can I just testify to that? You can argue me. I, it's okay. We can agree to disagree, but I can just tell you. And a prayerless church is a powerless church, especially against the foes that we face in this generation. I'm telling you. Against drug overdoses and abuse, and addiction, and violence, and all the stuff that's happening in the world, our meals and our discussions will not touch it. But prayer, and worship, and surrender to God 
friends, it changes things. And I'm not saying you should never have a meal and never discuss God. <laughs> Please do that. But so many times that it, it's a substitute. It's a way to relate to God at arm's length when the offer is to become one. I pray that my people will be one just as I am in the Father and he is in me, that they would be in me. We would be one, all one here, that we'd be one with him. That happens through worship and prayer. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. I want to read this quote. Um says this, the joyful act of praising God, a thankfulness flowing almost automatically from recognition of God's gifts and character is the central action of the human, the self-transcending act in which we begin to participate in our fullest flourishing. And he goes on to say, our fullest flourishing is to be creatures called to become fit to bear the joy that is our destiny. I want you to hear this. This is such a fascinating statement. Your job while you're on the earth is to become the kind of person who is fit to bear your ultimate destiny. We're to grow and mature and become like Jesus in such a way that someday we will be who we were meant to be when we're with him forever and ever and ever. And the beginning of that process for me is always worship. It, it is getting to a place where praise and thankfulness, praise and thanksgiving, this joyful act, it's the central action of our life on earth. And so again, I love it. It's not everything. It doesn't mean you don't read your Bible. It doesn't mean we don't serve the poor. It doesn't mean we don't work for God in the world. But it's the beginning of all those things. Because it is a self-transcendent act. It's a, an acknowledgement that I'm not God, that I'm not in charge, that I don't have the answers, that I have no power. And so I come to him and I give him thanks and I give him worship and I give him praise and I surrender my life and say, God, use me like a vessel. I'm just something, someone that you pour your power through into the world. He says this, the churches are those institutions that aim to give us a communal and personal, intellectual and effective structure to help cultivate joy. The church's job to, is to cultivate joy. And we get this all the time in our church. We're like, man, I love coming to your church because it's joyful and it's expressive. And I'm like, yes, we have joy because Jesus is real. And he loves us and he dwells in our midst they are the communities where the grace of Christ and the joy that flows from it is most intentionally and intensively solicited. It's reception cultivated and through that cultivation most palpably and vividly endured. So listen to that. This is the place where we solicit the grace of God to our life. We just say, God, I need you. I need your grace. And when we receive that grace, we care for it, we cultivate it, we plant a garden of grace and we watch stuff grow. And then what happens is it endures over time. And I've said this before, I'm going to say it again, the church is the only thing you can give your life to that will be here in 500 years. Your business will be gone, that nonprofit will be gone, the government will be gone, all of your descendants will basically be gone. The only thing that will endure in this life is the church. And it's the only thing that will endure into the next life. This family, friends, will worship together for eternity. It's real. 
That's a pretty weak clap, but... into existence by God, loved into existence by God, whose love, God's love, is not simply admiration akin to a warm beam or distant from a distant sun, but constitution like hot blood that surges through our flesh. That's what the love of God is like. The love of God is not like a, like a distant beam of sunshine. You're like, oh, isn't that nice? It's like hot blood that surges through you. It's passion. Amen? And his, our response to that should be passion in return. It should be worship. So we've got 10 minutes right now to worship. Like 10 minutes to make a choice to say, like, God, I want to connect to you in the way that that woman did. I want you to show me something about yourself. I'm going to give you what you deserve, which is just my heartfelt worship. And I just want to say there's not a one way this should look. I'm not giving any prescription about how you do that. All I know is that in your heart, you can ask God, say, God, would you devastate me today with the reality of who you are? To where I couldn't get near you without weeping. I couldn't speak your name without getting moved. So I want you to stand to your feet. I'm going to pray for us. And we're singing two songs. The first song is just about what Jesus has done for us. And here's what I want you to know. Jesus paid the same price for you that he paid for the worst sinner you can think of. Isn't that amazing? So we all got the same deal. Which means our love should pour out to him in the same way. And then we're going to sing about um, what happens after Jesus did that for us and the possibilities of living that way out. So I want you to pray with me. Just bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment. look more like that Pharisee or does it look more like that woman? What would they say? And that question is it judgment or condemnation? Because Jesus loved Simon the Pharisee more than Simon could imagine. And his invitation to Simon was to come with him in the same way that the woman was coming with him. So the invitation for every person maybe a seasonal thing. You're like, oh, I remember the time I was that woman and now I'm the Pharisee. Or maybe you're like, I was the Pharisee, now I'm the woman. This is great. Whatever it is, but I just want to ask that question. Because in my own heart, I sense just the times where I drift. And I hear the, the call back to costly, abandoned worship. So Jesus, we love you. While we were yet sinners, you died for us. And you brought us in to the glory of the one and only Father. Thank you for this woman, God. Thank you for her story. I can't wait to meet her someday. What an incredible thing. God, would you today make us like her? 